Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome back to New Books in Jewish Studies. I'm your host, Max Kaiser. We have a great show for you today. With us, we have Elena Shapira, who lectures at the University of Applied Arts in Vienna. She's here to talk about her new book, Style and Seduction, Jewish Patrons, Architecture and Design in Fond de Siècle, Vienna, published in 2016 by Brandeis University Press. Elena, thanks very much for being with us. You are most welcome. Thank you for being interested in the book. Thank you. So first question, how did you come to write this book? It is, it is, actually, it is a long story because I was asked years ago to write the biography of a very prominent Jewish family, the Taylors Goldman, from, who were the owners of the Goldman and Zalich house that Adolf Loss, a very prominent Austrian architect, designed in um, 1910. And so um, I started writing the story of the family and I discovered plenty of material and how rich the material and nobody touched it until then. And then I even had the luck of receiving a grant to interview the granddaughter who survived the Holocaust. So I went and spoke with her and also from the interview I was very much inspired by her because she became also a designer about the Jewish background, about the involvement, about the ideology that they had in building a modernist, at the time it was a shocking, and it uh, provoked a scandal, a shocking architectural piece at the center of Vienna. And this, from this small story that was not published at the time, because for different um, developments that happened at the time with the Albertina, it was supposed to be for a catalog at the Albertina Museum in Vienna, um, I think this was the first uh, study case I worked on, and it was about architecture and fashion and Jewish identity, which turned out to be somehow seminal to the history of Viennese modernism. And so this is how I started, and then it turned into my doctorate. Um, and from that, I decided that there were so many other details that were that were missing in the doctorate that I would like to include in a in a more extended manuscript. So I, I started working on the book itself, and this was the beginning. Great. So yes. how has Jewish influence on modern architecture and design in Vienna been previously theorized or, or looked at, and how does your work differ from those those previous approaches? So this is a very interesting question, you know, because... When I started handling the Jewish patronage, it was all, almost like a taboo subject. Mm-hmm. Nobody wanted really to, to to handle it because nobody knew what does it mean to handle Jewish identity, identification. Many of them were assimilated. Many were secular. Many of them um, had ties to the Orthodox Jewish community. So it was very difficult as, as, uh, to the majority, both to Austrian architectural historians, design historians, art historians, um, also to Anglo-Saxon art historians, to handle the subject. And um, 
And there was a very prominent fight between um, an historian called Stephen, Stephen Bella and a very prominent artist historian, um, Ernst Gombrich, who was a immigrant from Vienna, about what does it mean to discuss the involvement of Jews in, the, in, the, in shaping Viennese modernism. Well, Stephen Bella said that when you started, all those who were involved in producing the culture of Viennese modernism had to come to terms with the troubles of a minority, of the integration story, of the specific culture of education, the fact that many of them were very educated, the fact that they were very ambitious about integration in society, and at the same time discriminated. Gombrich, who was an immigrant, an Austrian immigrant, um, um, who came from an assimilated Jewish family, said that there was nothing about it. And if you start speaking about Jewish identity, you're actually inventing something new, something in a... In a, in a in, and he also, because of the persecution of his family, because he was forced to leave Vienna, he felt as if it was repeating the, the story of the of the Nazi uh, framing the Jewish element in society. So there were two these two prominent voices in 1996 that uh, discussed it. And and they started it, actually, with discussing it. And then there were uh, other scholars who addressed it because of the lack of information about what does it mean, Jewish culture, Jewish identities at the turn of the century. They they enjoyed exoticizing it. So like if someone would say, oh, he's a Jewish patron, so immediately there were connotations, oh, there's something extravagant. They had, of course, the figure of uh, Gustav Klippen in the head, portraits of his Jewish patrons, of the woman, very exotic, black hair, like some fatas, uh, aura. And at the same time, what happened was that, um, so they, they didn't enter the, the actual individual cases and analyze them. So in my book, I tried to show that it won a lit. Yes, there were networks. Yeah, there were one of a network. There were several networks, several Jewish cultural networks. But, but each individual, as a Jewish patron, had his own story, his own biography, his own motivation. And they, when through these private stories, they managed to make a great contribution because they had to come to terms with different conditions. So if you look at Viennese modernism, it's a very pluralistic modernism. Yeah, you have the Jugendstil, you have the modernist, you have the historicist. So you have the, the, the stories, the private stories. For me, it was very important to try and analyze and bring them more to the fore, the front. That's great. Yeah, so we'll start um, going through the chapters in your book. And your book covers four different artistic periods. Um, starting with the historicists in the 1860s and 1870s. Tell us about this period and about Tedesco and Epstein, um, who were patrons of Hansen, the chief architect of, of the Ringstrasse. So Tedesco and Epstein, they were different characters, but very, but had the same ideology. When they, they bought the land in order to build the palace around the Ringstrasse. It was, um, so Tedesco was earlier. He was the early 1860 and Epstein 1870. It was the first time the Jews were allowed at, at all to own a land and to build their own palaces. And there is a beautiful sentence from one of the journalists in Vienna at the time. Yeah, somehow, um, really, I'm not sure, it's like he's rewriting the, what they wanted to say is that we are here and we want to stay and we want to show ourselves in public. So mm -hmm. 
This was the first time that they received the recognition and the possibility to present themselves and to contribute to the actual making of Vienna publicly. Yeah, not not because there were salons. There were women's salons before from the early 19th century, from the Biedermeier time, Fanny von Arnstein, and there were many other wealthy Jewish women who opened the salons to the artists and to authors. And, and everybody came, but it was always in private. It was not in public. It was not shaping the city. It was shaping in the background. The background, the literature scene, the art scene partly, but it was not really the, the, the urban landscape. So when Tedesco has this possibility to, to negotiate how he would he like to present himself in public, he has the background of several, uh, Edward Tedesco, his brother-in-law Gompers, Theodor Gompers, is a renowned philologist. He's uh, specializing in Greek philosophy and Greek culture. Um, he comes both his contacts, his network, his family networks, Auschwitz and Lieben, all of them were already very much westernized Jews. I mean, it's a second, third generation of people that were involved in, in at the top of the Austro-Hungarian monarchy in the, in the um, system of uh, finance system and cultural system. So there were, and also his father was a, a, already a patron. So he has the background, and he has the opportunity to come out with a statement publicly in architecture. And he chooses something that is very, somehow, that is logical for us, but maybe it was striking at the time. He tries to show how Jews were part of the Western tradition, but referring back in the historical period where Jews were actually taking part also in the Hellenistic culture. So he uses all sorts of Hellenistic symbols on the facade, striking, yeah, not classical Greek, yeah, not, not the mm. columns that are very popular, but really figures like the Caryatids, like the um, Hercules figures on the facade, or inside the Judgment of Paris in the dining room, to show how much he is involved in actually the, um, um, the, the uh, Greek culture and how beautifully it could be combined with Jewish symbols, because one of the Caryatids carries a tiara with the Star of David. Uh, the the floor, the wooden floor in his uh, dining room and in the salon had kind of a decorative uh, star, Star of David shape on it. So they they somehow managed beautifully to harmonize both tradition, Western tradition and Jewish tradition, in the house. So this is Tedesco with a very cultural network. And it what what was surprising for many people who read the uh, the book was the fact that. It's not a second society as it was have been regarded for many years. Yeah, so there was the high aristocracy and then the second um, society who were high bourgeoisie and somehow bought, bought their way for philanthropy into the aristocracy. They were actually inviting people at the top of the Schwarzenberg and Metternich. They were friends. They were actually socialized. They were supporting each other. Uh, Gentile aristocrats and Jewish aristocrats, and but Jewish high bourgeoisie, they were both making uh, philanthropic events and cultural events together. So there was a very, very um, somehow um, close relationships um, in on the Ringstrasse, which is a, a landmark in Vienna. Now, this is Tedesco Palais and the salon of his wife, of uh, Edward uh, Sophie von Tedesco. 
about Epstein, Epstein learned from Tedesco. He was part of the events. He, he was invited, actually, to some of the uh, grand events in Tedesco Salon. So he already, and he also wrote a letter of how impressed he was from one of the events. So he has already kind of a teacher. And, of course, he wants to show that he is also part of this arist- uh, aristocratic cultural uh, production. So... What he does, he does it much more, not calculated, but much more thoughtful, reflective, critical. He, he has not the judgment of Paris at the center, as a centerpiece in his apartment. He has the birth of Venice, which is a classical renaissance. Um, he has other elements. He buys also masterpieces from Franz Hall or different, so different, um, masterpieces to show off. So he's one step more, um, somehow, in the level of Rothschild and in the level of uh, other aristocrats on the Ringstrasse. The problem with Epstein and the tragedy that even though he was very prominent and he was highly regarded by everyone, he what happened with him was that during the stock market crash in 1872, uh, one of his, uh, his clerks, because he left, somehow he allowed uh, his workers to take over the bank that was on the ground floor of his rental apartment palace, um, uh, somehow speculated with his fortune, and he lost everything. And instead of saying, let's survive, and we managed to postpone the paying off of the, of the debts, he immediately made sure to pay everyone. And so, very, he, so he went bankrupt. And a few years later, he had to leave the palace as well. Um, so he did not manage to rise up to the, to the cultural production of of the Tedescos who stayed until 1938 in the palace and the, the, his, their daughter. Um, he did not, but at the same time, the reputation of Epstein and the palace as a monument in Vienna is so highly recognized. It is now owned by the Austrian parliament. And the Austrian parliament is somehow proud yeah, to have such a jewel as part of its cultural history. And they enjoy telling the story of Gustav Epstein and his family and how highly regarded he was, how gentleman, how great Viennese gentleman. So he somehow, even though Tedesco was the actual producer of culture, it's Epstein in retrospect who is now being celebrated as part of the high Austrian political setup. Mm. And and does it answer your answer, uh, your question? I hope so. Yes, yes, yes. So... um. In chapter two, you move on to look at the Jewish patrons of the uh, Vienna Secession, uh, the first avant-garde movement in Vienna uh, from the years 1897 to 1902. Uh, You suggest that they um, initiated new acculturation through modernist design. Tell us a bit about what you mean by this. The issue with the... the, 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 one of the problems that the historicist uh, movement had to deal with, or the patrons of the historicist movement had to deal with, was the rise of anti-Semitism and German nationalism in Vienna. And um, there were, I, I would refer to them as celebrities, uh, Viennese celebrities, Tedesco and Epstein, because they had many, many, uh, the, the newspapers were, were, were reporting about them a lot. But at the same time, there were many caricatures, ugly caricatures of, of uh, Jewish patrons. There was also a specific attack of Tedesco. And, um, 
And what happened was in, in the early 1890s that you had several affairs coming up. You had the Dreyfus Affair in France, and you have the election of Carol Luega in 1897. 1895 was the first time he was elected. He was an anti-Semitic uh, politician who promoted uh, boycotting Jewish shops. He was uh, promoting um, um, hate towards uh, supposedly the Jewish media, the Jewish liberal media. Um, 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 so these events somehow were in the background, but at the same time, um, there was a kind of a rebellion against the historicist patrons because the Ringstrasse was a kind of a um, both financial and cultural um, enterprise. Um, the Kreditanstalt that was owned by Rothschild, there were lib- many of the Ringstrasse uh, historicist Jewish patrons were part of it. Um, and the cultural production, you had the Bull Theater on the, um, in, uh, and you had the university. And whatever was progressive about these uh, um, institutions, these cultural, cultural institutions, these positivist, liberal, open, this was came also was supported by the Jewish Ringstrasse patrons. Now, when Wittgenstein and uh, Spitzer and um, um, Karl Wittgenstein, who came from a second-generation assimilated family, um, comes to the front, he and he has businesses with Gompers, and he knows the Gompers family, the brother-in-law of Edward Tedesco. And I assume he was also invited to the Edward Tedesco Salon because he comes from Figdo family was very close to each other. So when he comes, he said, I want something different. So not only that you have this very intensified um, cultural conflict between liberal Jewish um, culture and a nationalistic German, um, um, I would say, xenophobia uh, promoted, you also have second generations of uh, sons of Jewish fathers who want to make their own statement, who want to make something different. So... So Karl Wittgenstein comes to the fore. He makes his fortune through Rothschild and Gutmann, two very prominent Jewish families in the city. He managed to become a, a steel tycoon. And when he starts, actually in the second part of the 1890s, beginning of the 20th century, to become an art patron, he says, I want something new, completely new. First of all, if they wanted to support the ideal of Western Jews, the Renaissance Jews, the Hellenistic Jews, I don't have any problems in showing the fact that, yeah, supporting the house, like the secession house, yeah, because he was the, financed it with two-thirds of the, of the, of the costs. I don't have any problems in supporting a building that would look like something as if it just was um, imported from the East. And it was actually um, somehow recognized, both praised and but also criticized as an invasion from the East. And this has something to do with the fact there was also a growing Jewish population in Vienna, and there were many synagogues, Moorish synagogues, Oriental synagogues, because the architects who wanted to reflect about about what, how can we identify the Jewish um, culture in in architectural at God of House, um, House of God, um, how how can we identify this? They said, oh, let's identify them as the people who came from the East, and it was easier for them to refer to um, Eastern um, um, 
um, symbols. So when the Cessation House comes up, it comes within this context, yeah? A very intensified cultural conflict between liberal Jewish element and national German. Then you have the second generation rebellion, yeah, saying, okay, you discriminate us, you exclude us as uh, Easterners, we will show you what we can do. And then they somehow combine the Eastern elements. You have the gold coming up in Gustav Klimt's portraits. You have also the, um, the secession that looks as if it's an import from the East, a very architectural piece. And from this point onward, you have also the most modernist um, stylistic elements um, coming up because they were influenced and they were welcoming them up. So Albrecht, who uh, was influenced by French uh, Art Nouveau and integrated it in his art. Then you have also Hoffman uh, taking one step forward and saying, okay, not only Art Nouveau is modern, we could, go, we could be influenced by the British uh, design models uh, by Ashby and uh, MacDonald. So they, they bring other... And, and the Jews supported, the Jewish patrons supported, not the Jews, because you had different schools within the Jewish minority, but the Jewish patrons who wanted to position themselves different than the parents, they promoted. Um, and partly, one, one argument would be about their uh, support was that they really wanted to make a difference. They wanted to support the modernization of the city because somehow it fitted very well with their integration and with the fact an anti-nationalistic, anti-reactionary, anti-religious um, trends in the society at the time. So in Chapter 3, you look at um, the modernists between 1902 and 1907 and you focus on two Jewish patrons who styled themselves it's very different types of Jewish dandies. Tell yep. us about Jewish dandyism and the two different approaches taken um, by these two figures. I I got somehow to 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 acknowledge the phenomenon of the dandy in Viennese modernism when I was working um, on fashion and architecture, and I noticed how important it was for. Um, for uh, patrons at the time to present themselves best in public. And Jewish patrons, um, so Jewish, the, the young Jewish men, um, both Werendorfer and um, Fritz Werendorfer, and uh, as uh, the textile, um, owner of the textile factories, and um, Richard Bear Hoffman, the author, a very prominent author at the time, they wanted to show how you can manage to um, promote authorship, cultural authorship, uh, with a kind of a celebrity status. So the dandy was more flirting with, um, with the ideal of um, images of seduction, both if you speak about Werendorfer his support of uh, dancers and his um, own design of his house as a kind of a... He had his art gallery filled with Gustav Klimt and um, a um, and uh, Birdsley, um, Aubrey Birdsley, a British uh, 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 
uh, artist. And so he somehow managed that he needed to position himself in such a way that people will, will have curiosity and feel attracted to what he has to offer. And he did it beautifully with the flirtation that he had and with the idea of how he, of course, presented himself in the best clothes in public. And Warendorfer was... Um, um, but was for him that he was from the very beginning also um, supportive of the modern turns in Vienna. And he was also um, the guy who financed the Wiener Werkstätte um, projects from the beginning. So when you have two professor coming, two professors coming from um, the University of Applied Arts today, but then it was the Kunstgewerbeschule, Joseph Hoffmann and Colin Mosser, coming and asking him for finance in order to build the kind of a Viennese workshops. Um, he's the first one who said yes, for sure. Because for him, as he himself noted, to promote beauty was a kind of a justification. It was a kind of a core. Yeah, He was very ambivalent also about his Jewish identity. So it was a kind of a compensation, a kind of uh, about... And he speaks about it, about he ridiculous his um, um, manners, or he 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 belittles himself, and at the same time, all the money he invested in both in the workshops and later on in the cabaret Fledermaus allowed him a lot to come to terms with it. Um, so the dandy element is like using the element of seduction in art and in theater later on as well, and in dance performances in order to show, to compensate, and to, to, to support the celebrity um, identification. And with Richard Berghoffmann, it starts with his, actually with his short stories, in which he flirts with the image of the dandy, and he shows actually how the dandy develops and how self-reflective he is, and how involved he is, and now um, he's um, um, not egocentric, but somehow... Um, 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 handling himself, uh, uh, analyzing himself, opening up to himself. And this was beautiful because it's very modern. It's very similar to what we have today in modern times in society. And, uh, and with Bear Hoffman, uh, more than like it, it, it's a very similar relationship between Tedesco and Epstein, that while Tedesco was belittled us and ridiculed us as, uh, uh, in his attempt to become a culture uh, producer, uh, Epstein was uh, re regarded, highly regarded and respected. So uh, the same with Fritz Werendorfer and Bear Hoffmann. When Fritz, Verend uh, Fritz Werendorfer was somehow laughed at and belittled for being, um, for trying to build up a dandy image and an art patron, so for his snobbism, for his re references to erotic art, for his um, um, all sorts of... Um, also over-investments in our design, Richard Bear Hoffman received all the um, uh, compliments, yeah, because he succeeded first with his literature. His short stories were very well received. They were very modern. They were very um, uh, psychological. People admired it. And at the same time, they admired how he looked. And whatever he touched, it looked it turned to beauty. People went to him and asked, oh, "How should I? What books should I take with me to Italy? What should? What what dress? What um, um, uh, outfit should I wear for this occasion? What dresses should I uh, use for a historical uh, reconstruction?" People came to him for advice for aesthetics. So there are two characters. 
that's managed to build a kind of a network of uh, what we call style and seduction, yeah, that attracted people to them at the center of the Viennese society. And this is what granted them also, the, uh, granted both of them, both Fritz Verhandhofer and Richard Ed Hoffman, the, the, the legitimization and the creative license to produce further and further until later in the, until uh, Fritz Verhandhofer went bankrupt and was forced to, to immigrate to America by his family. And Richard Berhoffman was forced to immigrate uh, after uh, um, the Anschluss. Um, so, uh, and so the, the, they, they, and until today, actually, what was so surprising for me that everybody knew about these two people. Everybody knew Fritz Verhoffman. I, I mean, not everybody. I mean, the, the curators I spoke with, the art historians I spoke with. But the first sentence I heard about Fritz Verhoffman years ago, yeah, from a curator at Albertina. Yes, he was Jewish, but there was nothing Jewish about him. So I, when I started working on him. You know, uh, on and researching his background, it was amazing how, first of all, from his letters, how much he was aware about his Jewish identity and how discriminated it was, and how he had to was forced to come to terms. But the second, how he actually supported coming to terms in the Cabaret Fledermaus uh, for all the texts that came up. Yeah, there's a very prominent Goethe play. Um, that was performed 300 times in Cabaret Fledermaus from 1907 till 1911. And in this uh, Goethe play um, that was um, by uh, Polgar and Friedel, two very prominent um, Austrian authors, uh, Jewish um, authors, um, there is a kind of a um, comedy when Goethe is asked, um, there is a test actually, in a classroom at the beginning of the 20th century. And there's a Jewish guy called Cohn, and there is another two students, gentle students, and the teacher is asking them, both all three, um, to answer questions about Goethe biography. And um, the two appear, the two gentiles appear as if they can't manage to come up with the answers, and if they feel a bit threatened. And so they ask, actually, they evoke the spirit of Goethe and Goethe and they invite him back to life and he, they ask him to answer the test for himself. And then the, the teacher continues uh, asking the questions and while um, and Goethe answers and the student Cohn answers. And it appears as if student Cohn knows more about Goethe's life than Goethe himself. <laughs> and Goethe is, a, is like is a bit embarrassed at the beginning and then suddenly starts laughing hysterically because it's obvious that the cone is much more ambitious because it's about the reflection about Jewish integration in society, about how mm -hmm. eager they were to adapt the German uh, culture, how eager they were to learn, to know the best, to prove themselves in society. So this is... This is not perhaps the case of Fritz Warendorfer. Of Fritz Warendorfer, as a Jewish patron, who was aware that this subject about the eagerness, about the, the eagerness to adapt the German culture, yeah, is critical for dis, uh, discussing the 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 um, this part integral part of the Jewish culture in Vienna. So uh, performing it, and it was a hit in the Cabaret Fledermaus, yeah, uh, was showed how how much yeah despite what the curator said, what was Jewish about him, how critical it was for them to come to terms with the Jewish identification. Mm. Yeah. 
That's very interesting. Yeah. In in chapter in chapter four, you look at the avant gardists uh, from nineteen oh eight to nineteen eleven. In this chapter, you suggest um, you you discuss the relationship of the architect at Luce with his Jewish clients, and you say that it depended on a desire for a brotherhood of modern men united by the appeal of modern modern aestheticism. Can you tell us a bit about these relationships and what you mean by that statement? Of course, yeah. So, um, Adolf Loos, um, um the architect, the Austrian architect Adolf Loos, when he comes back to Vienna at the end of the 19th century after a tour in America, he never finished the diploma of, uh, to become an architect. Um, when he arrives in Vienna, also his mother made sure that he will not inherit the factory of his father. So he's a bit um, not homeless because he was always somehow he managed to survive, but he was in a somehow in a um, um, in a disadvantage, especially since all the, his colleagues at this point exactly in the history. At the end of the 19th century, we're speaking about 1897, 1895, and in the beginning of the 20th century, they received posts. They're like Joseph Hoffman became a professor at the Kunstgewerbeschule, Kolomoto became a professor, Otto Wagner since 1895, the professor at the Academy of Fine Arts. So all those who were makers and shakers in the Viennese modern architecture were actually, were actually positioned, well positioned, um, in, 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 um, and had institutions, um, um, well-recognized institutions behind them. Um, um, Adam Floss, he started finding his institutions in a different manner. He started uh, buying well-tailored suits at Goldman and Zalich, um a Jewish tailor, and then in Ernst Epstein, a Protestant. And for his connections with his tailors, and especially the Jewish tailors, because they were willing to risk coming out in public more in a more courageous manner than the Gentiles. Um, through his connections with the tailors, he managed to somehow develop an alternative institutional, cultural institutional um, setting or network in Vienna. And... Um, they supported him. They supported his uh, cultural agenda. He very fast became an expert in tailor, uh, in, in tailor, um, and in fashions, men's fashions, women's fashion. He wrote brilliant uh, essays in the liberal uh, newspaper, the Neue Freie Presse, Neue Freie Presse, um, in the 1898. So his collaboration or his cooperation with Michael Goldman from Goldman and Zalich, who was a self-made tailor coming from Moravia, um, and very with um, amazing vision about how he would like to fashion his store as an English enterprise and a an, uh, cultural club. So um, this kind of a um, cooperation led a granted first loss his um, authorship to continue finding um, uh, clients and granted uh, Goldman and Jewish tailors in the city a, also a kind of a, a beautiful aesthetic, um, distinguished facade, distinguished uh, not only in the, in the fashion itself, not only in men's suits, because they were 
very progressive in regard to the material, in regard to the cut, in regard to um, in regard to looking at the latest trends of fashion around the world, especially in um, England. Um, so this led both of them the uh, somehow the legitimization to make a statement in public. What added uh, to this uh, basic relationship or kind of a core relationship, um, a more um, um, charisma, was the fact that Adolf Loss at the same time joined several coffee uh, um, uh, houses, circles. So he joined the circle of uh, Peter Altenberg, a very prominent Jewish author, uh, poet, um, and Karl Kraus, a very feared for, um, yeah, people feared him for his criticism, who was the editor, Kraus was the editor of the Fackel, who was, which was a kind of an opposition, um, very progressive in regard to um, supporting uh, women's rights, partly because they were against, they were supporting, they were against the law against abortion and so, and, and, and in regard to, but there was some ambivalence there as well. And so this cultural network and the tailored network came together. And this, if you, if you try to imagine, they managed. I think Adolf Loss was the connection. Yeah, the gentle Adolf Loss was the connection between his Jewish tailors and the cultural scene. But with the aesthetics of the fashion and that influenced his ideas about being uh, designing anonymous facades in public, um, design using the best quality of materials like marble and wooden mahogany and other sorts of woods that were very expensive at the time. So with this aesthetics and the cultural uh, charisma of the coffeehouse circles of Altenberg and Kraus, a new, a new network uh, started. Um, the, I'm not sure they socialized together, but for sure they supported each other because when Adolf Loss wants to promote the ideal of a gentleman in public and how a gentleman should dress in public, um, uh, for sure, he gets the ads from Goldman and Zalich to support him, as well as other um, clients um, um, that he was designing the homes for, or where uh, people wanted to see what Adolf Ross was selling because he didn't have any institute or, uh, or stage for exhibition because he somehow rejected the secessionist um, style. So they allowed them. They, he, he simply invited people to the Goldman and Zalich to buy tickets for a walking tour for his apartments at the time. So this is, was a kind of a business network, a cultural and business network that were combined together. Um, what is important about the Goldman relationship, Goldman himself, when I interviewed his daughter, he came out time and again as a very, um, very gentile, in regard, not gentle, like a kind of, um, not gentle, this is the wrong word, but very um, good-mannered gentleman. He was very, um, he, he, he was very, he, he was soft-spoken. He was very sensitive about uh, small issues if, uh, um, to the people around him. He, um, he was full of respect towards his workers. Um, he himself, as a character, we did not have maybe the charisma that the, the collaboration with um, Adolf Loss 
granted them. So it was a kind of a cooperation between between two characters, yeah, both of them very respectful towards the the their professions as tailors and as architects, found many common um, um, characteristics together, and they supported each other. And this, this, but, yeah, this is, their collaboration together made sure to make a kind of a um, um, monument of modernism in the Goldman and Zalach house. Now, this is, a very important point to make because I speak about Jewish patients and I speak about Jewish culture and Jewish identification, and for sure there was a, um, um, a lot of an, an attempt to counter antisemitism and to build a new positive Jewish identity in the city through supporting progression. But this support was also a collaboration between a Jewish tailor and a Gentile architect, a Christian architect. So it, it was a kind, it was not a Jewish enterprise as one scholar was afraid to identify. It wasn't a hundred percent Jewish enterprise. It was dialogues between Jews and Gentiles. They were socializing together. They were full of respect to each other. In the case of Goldman and Loss, the, the, um, and um, Altenberg and Loss, for sure, the poet Altenberg and Loss, um, they were jealous of each other in the case of Altenberg and Loss, but at the same time, they were co- collaborating, they were cooperating, they were, they were envisioning how to make Vienna more modern, how to support a new psychological aspect in the relationship to Altenberg. So one cannot lo- read the book, Style and Seduction, and say this is a Jewish project. One has to look at the book Style and Seduction and refer to dialogues between Jews and Gentiles. And the fact that there was a Jewish agenda behind it, the fact that there was a socialization, the fact that there were very, that there were critical tensions in the background in the Vienna between German nationalism and growing antisemitism, and there is a very strong, um, at the time, Karl Luega, um, as the mayor of the city, who is promoting antisemitic rhetoric, um, this heightened, probably, made it, not radicalized it, but made it more of a revolutionary statement, yeah, that it came up as a Viennese modernism, as a positive representation also of modern Jewish identity. Yeah, so, and, and the dandies in this element and the brotherhood that they were making, I think without the brotherhood, without the networks of style and seductions that they referred to in the two chapters on modernism and the avant-garde, they wouldn't have managed to make such a grand statement. They wouldn't have managed to make the mark on the Viennese landscape. They wouldn't have managed to 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 force us today to come to terms with all the identity questions they had which is very, very relevant to post-modern culture or the 21st culture about positioning yourself in society as a minority group um, um, of, uh, uh, with, uh, with very concrete um, um, tradition and history in our historical narrative. So in many ways, the brotherhood that I referred to in, in, in the avant-garde chapter and also in the modernist chapter has something to do with the fact that it was necessarily necessary and critical for making the public statements. It was, so how does it work in, uh, in actually it was very, it was very mundane. Goldman was granting loss the 
the stage in his work in his tailoring shop to sell his products. He was allowing, he was placing ads in the short-lived Journal of Laws. He was, uh, he would uh, um, uh, grant him um, different um, possibilities to be introduced to clients of his in order to, um, and at the same time, Laws will uh, uh, supported Goldman as an elite fashion store. And with uh, Karl Kraus and Altenberg, the coffee house circle, they would, first of all, Karl Kraus was constantly reporting on laws, not constantly, but critically reporting and promoting him as an opposition to the secession. He rejected, both of them rejected the secession as a decorative movement and as a superficial movement, as a movement that did not really actually come to terms with Jewish identity. Um, or acculturated Jewish identity, um, and uh, and so there was. They granted the stage, and they granted the financial support. So um, the networks and the brotherhood was very, very closely tied to each other. Well, I think that was um, a good summing up of some of the central themes of the book, and uh, we've gone a little over time so i think we'll have to leave it there okay um but thank you very much for um talking to us about your uh book today elena it's a really very interesting and and very rich book um thank you very much thank you thank you and so you've been listening to new books in jewish studies with your host max kaiser uh with us today we had elena shapira who lectures at the University of Applied Arts in Vienna. She talked to us about her new book, Style and Seduction, Jewish Patrons, Architecture and Design in Fond de Siècle, Vienna, published in 2016 by Brandeis University Press.